Hello and welcome to Brits on Flicks. I'm your host Graham and with me as always is... Brian Lomax from Brian Lomax Movie Talk. And this month the, the movie choice was uh, from myself and that movie was Trainspotting from 1996. Um, I chose this movie primarily because the seat was coming out and I just really like watching it so it was a no-brainer for me. Uh, Brian, do you want to just talk us through how you discovered Trainspot and what you thought about uh, briefly? Yeah, I mean, when did this come out again now? Was it 95, 94? Oh, 96, right. Okay, so I was 16 when this came out. Um, I didn't go to the cinema to see it, uh, but I waited for when it came out on video. And obviously by that point, you know, traction had been made. It was basically a a big cultural phenomenon. Uh, And I, I think when I watched it, it wasn't quite the film I was expecting. Um, it, I mean, Quentin Tarantino was very, very big at that point, very hot off the, off the back of, uh, obviously, Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. And I kind of fe- felt like this film was an attempt by a British filmmaker to tap into that kind of filmmaking, that very kind of, yeah, it, it, it was very different. To, to what we were used to seeing, I think, from British cinema. But it, it definitely, to me, at any rate, felt like it had an influence from Tarantino. Uh, and I think because of that, I, I, I guess I, I didn't give it its due. I think I kind of underrated it a bit, um, just because I just, yeah, like I fobbed it off as a, a Tarantino wannabe. Um, but I think o- over the years, after seeing it a few more times and, you know, gaining a bit more of a uh, critical perspective from from, uh, from cinema, you know, with how, how to read cinema and whatnot, I, I started to appreciate it a lot more. And, uh, yeah, so it's definitely a film that's grown on me over the years, especially given the career that Danny Boyle has gone on to have. Um, you know, he, he proved that he wasn't like a, a one- or two-trick pony. He's He's definitely proven himself as one of the best we have to offer so so yeah mm-hmm. much like yourself I, I didn't see this in the cinema either and by the time I got into seeing it it was a, a cultural phenomenon especially in Scotland um, where for one of the rare times you could actually see people with the, the Scottish twang portraying themselves <laughs> in a movie and that, that's something that is not often really, uh, portrayed Okay, it's not in the best circumstances, but it's still nice to hear that, the city accent. <laughs> so, I actually remember picking this up. I picked it up in video. It was back in the day when Woolworth still existed. And you oh, used wow. to do like a, a new release. If you bought that, you could buy another movie for a couple of quid. Hmm. So I picked up Train Spotting and Shallow Grave at the same time. Ah, yeah. And um, I remember sitting down and watching Train Spotting, and it got about, I'd say, to the toilet sequence. And I was like, I don't know what the hell I'm watching. I've never seen anything <laughs> like this before. I don't understand it, but I know I like it. Mm. And, and I'd say in my lifetime there's been a, maybe five, six movies that I've um, finished watching and immediately put right back on the first time and watched it straight away again just to try and get my head around what I had just seen. And from that moment on, I just I just loved the movie. 
of course, over the years, it's meant different things to me. When you originally watch it as a youngster, it's it's kind of funny. It's the yeah. comedic moments you're looking at, but as you get older, you start to realise there's a lot more layered into the movie, which is yeah. probably why it's lasted a little bit longer than some other movies that I liked when I was younger. But mm-hmm. I'm sure we'll get into it in our main review. So, Brian, do you have a, a, a short synopsis for us? No, I do. <laughs> is, it, is it just choose train spotting? <laughs> the end. <clears throat> no, here we go. Okay. <clears throat> Renton, Sick Boy, Spud and Begbie are four friends growing up in Glasgow from the mid-80s through to the mid-90s. Is it Glasgow or is it Edinburgh? It's Glasgow, isn't it? Edinburgh. Oh, it's Edinburgh. Right, I'll start again. Okay. Renton, Sick Boy, Spud and Begbie are four friends growing up in Edinburgh from the mid-80s through to the mid-90s. All four of these men are addicts in one way or another, whether it's an addiction to heroin in the case of Renton, Sick Boy and Spud, or an addiction to violence in the case of Begbie. As their descent into their drugs of choice becomes ever more destructive, both to themselves and the people around them, Renton begins to feel the pull of a cleaner, more wholesome life, free from heroin. But with his friends constantly trying to pull him back into the world of drugs, can Renton find the strength to break away from them and choose life? Excellent. So, uh, just looking at the things I want to discuss, and there's quite a lot, but I think the first thing I want to tackle is really the strange tone of the movie. And this is the, the probably the thing that set me off kilter the first time that I saw it, because it has some hard-hitting subject matter within the story itself, but it's laced with this wicked black humour within it that can really it turns a situation that's really sad or or disturbing but make it funny at the same time which kind of still hits you with the blow but kind of lessens it at the same time as well. You know you see these people doing things that are disgusting like when Begbie throws the glass over over his shoulder and causes a a fight in a, a pub you laugh at the sheer ridiculousness of his attitude to all this, but at the same time it's it's a horrible situation that he's causing. What do you think about the tone in this movie, Brian? Yeah, I think it's necessary because I mean, Danny Boyle said this himself but without that humour the the film just becomes well, it becomes Requiem for a Dream basically, um, you know, just a, a slow descent into hell and, and with no happy ending, mm-hmm. um, which for me makes it unwatchable. Now, I'm, I'm someone who, even to this day, I, I, I don't like Requiem for a Dream. I really disliked that film. Um, and I remember when it first came out, it, it got a one-star review and it was like one of, the, one of the bigger film magazines, like Empire or Total Film or whatever. And it's only in... You know, like the past decade since Darren Aronofsky's become this great big thing that they've kind of rechanged, like they've yeah. re- rethought things. And oh no, yeah, Requiem for Dream is a classic. Well, no, actually, I agree with your original review. It's a depressing hellhole of a film, and I don't like it. Um, I think it's kind of necessary uh, in one regard to, to to show people actually, you know, this is what drugs does to you. But there's no hope there. And what train spotting does is is the opposite to that. It it shows you the hope, and it shows you the reason why 
drugs are so um, enticing, I guess. You know, before you become addicted, you have to be you have to be enticed. Um, you know, there has to be a reason you would want to even try putting that stuff into your veins. Um, you know, and, and even, even with the addiction taking hold of you, you still have to have a reason to want to keep doing it. There's, there still has to be some sense of enticement as to why, you know, why, why you would carry on doing that. And I think this film shows it. So it never backs away. It never shies away from showing you what hell this this affliction can have this addiction can have on someone but it also never shies away from showing you that actually you know what when you put that stuff into your veins you are going to get a real high that's that's going to make you forget the fact that you're in some crappy bed sit with pee all over the walls and you know poo in the corner or whatever you know they, they they're in some pretty dingy places at yeah. times this you know thing and that scene you talk about you know with the toilet is absolutely perfect, just perfect for for demonstrating the mindset of an addict, which is that they will do anything to get that high. And you know, I I don't I don't work directly with addicts, but I work for an organization that does. And you know, I, I, I do the video production for that organization. It's a charity organization that that deals specifically with with addicts and ex addicts. Um, so I've ha- I've heard a lot of stories. I've heard a lot of testimonies. Um, you know, I've videoed a lot of testimonies from from these people. And some of the stories they come out with, some of the filth that they've allowed themselves to travel into for the sake mm-hmm. of drugs, you know. When when you as someone who isn't an addict or someone who isn't hooked on heroin or anything like that, you hear a story like that and you, you just think how? How could why would you do that? And that's what train spotting does. It shows you that actually, you know, yeah, as dirty and grubby and horrible as that world is, once you're in it, you will literally do anything. You will crawl down the filthiest toilet in Scotland to get to that that drug that you drop down there um so yeah so on one hand it's humorous you know seeing this guy <laughs> disappearing down the toilet but it really does tap into the mindset in a way that i don't think you could if you just if you didn't have that element of surrealism if you just tried to play it straight all the way throughout mm-hmm. yeah and but you look at the, the the characters that are in this none of them None of them are are nice people, you know. They they do horrible things to the people around them to each other. They're just they're not nice people. Yet for some reason, they're imbued with this kind of charisma around them. You, you know, you, I like seeing what they're going to do next. Even though what they're going to do next may not be the nicest thing, you, you can't look away from the screen and you don't, or I don't anyway, out and out detest any of these characters. There's there's a few. There's a few well, that well, well, <laughs> Begbie is probably the closest that comes no, to a character. Not, not even Begbie. Not even Begbie. Because he knows what he is. Um, and, yeah, okay, he, he, he is detestable because of, because of what he does. Um, but <clears throat> he knows what he is and he, he embraces it. But, like, for me, the, um, the guy play the, the, the mother superior played by yeah. 
Peter Cullen. Yeah. I, I find that guy absolutely detestable because he paints himself to these guys as, as their friend, as their, you know, watching over them kind of thing. Mm. But really all he is is a leech. He's an absolute leech. Um, he, you know, they are his source of income. Basically, um, so yeah, I absolutely detest that character. Yeah, but I'm not. The, the, I'm not really talking about this side character. There's more like the main, the main group of the, the five guys. Yeah, I was just going to get to uh, <laughs> sick, <coughs> sick boy. Um, I detest sick boys. Well, I, I, I don't know if I just have a uh, disposition towards. Um, Johnny Lee Miller, but um, <laughs> I can't say I've particularly liked him in anything that I've seen him in, but it, like especially the Train Spotting films, um, and I'm sure we'll get to Train Spotting two later in the show. But uh, yeah, I you know I, I I don't like his character and his whole shtick with the the Bond films, kind of you know having all this knowledge about the Bond moves and stuff. That, to me, is one of those elements that feels very Tarantino-esque or an attempt to be Tarantino-esque. And it doesn't quite work for me. I know it does for a lot of people, mm. but for me, it doesn't. It just... It, it doesn't kind of... It doesn't feel natural. Um, and I know a lot of this film is surreal, so in one sense, none of it's kind of natural. But mm. it kind of does feel that way. Like, even the surreal stuff, from a inside a character's head perspective it's natural you know it, mm. i it, i get i get it but this this angle with sick boy doing the whole movie quotes and stuff to me that just felt like somebody trying to be tarantino well is uh, sick boy i think as a character is somebody that's you wouldn't trust as far as you could throw you kind of get the feeling that he would throw you under the bus for two mm. pence if you could get away with it you know you just and i think by constantly talking about the, the James Bond character it's a cultural icon again and it's also Sean Connery who came from Edinburgh and they seem to have this deep-seated love for the town that they came from they, you know, they've got the Hibernian uh, scarves and football tops and his sort of love and constant talk about Sean Connery because he's probably one of the biggest most popular uh, faces from his hometown and I think it, because of James Bond such a, a huge impact and, and Sean Connery's a big impact it kind of grounds you into most the grounds the character because he's just talking about these things that you would like and you understand when he's talking about these things how he could take advantage of people because he kind of just has that way of talking that, that puts people at ease he's not talking about anything in particular and before you know it he could be away with your wallet yeah yeah but um <clears throat> It kind of reminded me, actually, of... And I know this film came after Train Spotting, but it kind of reminded me of uh, American Psycho, uh, <laughs> when uh, Christian Bale's character is constantly talking about... The, you know, he's, he's, Yeah, and he's, it's like he's reciting reviews and stuff, but he's, he's yeah. got that similar mentality where, actually, Sick Boy is a bit psychopathic. He shows mm -hmm. some tendencies there that... You know, maybe that's his way of fitting in, but yeah, um, yeah. For me, it was an element of the film that felt a bit fast, but but the main character, Mark Renton, played by Ewan <coughs> McGregor, um, as a character, you get this idea from Mark that he's he's not an idiot by any way, shape, or form. You know, he seems to be a very smart person, and even though he knows what he's doing is completely wrong, it just 
doesn't care about the consequences. It's, it's almost as if he's kind of given up in life, as if this is what his lot is going to be. This is what his friends does. This is what he's going to do. And we see it through the movie when he, com- he comes off drugs for a while himself. And then they actually say it themselves. You know, they make a conscious decision to go back onto it. It, it just... It's such a weird character, and it's a great performance by McGregor. Mm, yeah, I I think you um, <clears throat> McGregor's rarely been this good. Yeah, in a film. and that's that's not a put down of of him as an actor because he's done some incredible performances. I think he was fantastic in uh, The Impossible. Mm-hmm. I think he gave one of his best performances in that film as well. But <clears throat> just uh, I mean, writer Irving Welsh, the guy who wrote the books on which this is based. He compares Ewan McGregor's performance and his character here to Robert De Niro in Taxi Driver. And he, he says that it's kind of got that iconicism, iconography, or whatever the word is, mm-hmm. about him. And I totally agree. I, I would say, yeah, his character here is, is easily just as memorable, I think, as, as De Niro in Taxi Driver. There's, there's mm-hmm. definitely something about him. Because he's, he's absolutely charismatic, um, he's dark, twisted, but also manages to find a sense of hope as well and manages to burrow his way out of that addiction at the end. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he's he's definitely a character that has a, a, an abundance of sides. You know, you look at Begbie, mm-hmm. he's, got, he's got one note. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, you know, it's a scary note, but it's, it's mm-hmm. the same note. Um and to some degree, sick boy as well. You know, he's he's always looking for his next kind of fix, uh, so to speak. But yeah, with with Mark, you never really know, um, mm-hmm. and you kind of get the sense that he ended up into drugs through simply just wanting to stay connected to this group of friends. You know, they did it, so he does it, mm-hmm. and that's just the way it's gone. Um, but like you say, he, there's definitely more of an intelligence about his character than there is with his friends. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if, if if any one of them is going to break away from from the addiction, it's definitely going to be him. Yeah, and, and you've mentioned Begbie a few times, Robert Carlyle, who isn't the biggest fellow. You know, he's fairly short, mm. he's fairly scrawny, yet he carries a real menace and a real mean streak in this movie. Yeah, and it's it's a menace that I first saw in Cracker. I don't. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, <clears throat> I uh. I loved Cracker when it when it was first on TV. I was I was addicted to that show, and uh, it'd been some time since I'd seen it. And I I bought the box set actually, um, mm. and I've got to say I, I got halfway through Cracker. Like I mean, like the whole thing. So it was like I think it was like through the halfway through the fourth series, um, and my mood went. It took a skydive. Um, I, I literally ended up depressed watching that show, and in in the end, I made the conscious decision to stop watching it, and I got rid of the box set. Um, so I, yeah, I just I, I don't think I'm able to to tolerate that much darkness now in in my life. Uh, that, it was a very dark show, but um, even though I won't watch it again. I, I still have those memories of Robert Carlyle in that show and just how incredible he was. And like you say, such a small man, but such a force to be reckoned with. He, he's, he, you know, he, the amount of presence he's able to throw out from 
yeah, from like you say, from from such a small person is is incredible, and he does exactly the same here. You know, he after just after that scene you talk about when he throws the glass over the balcony and hits the woman on the head, he goes down. Mm-hmm. Obviously, to start something, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, it it doesn't matter how reasonable anyone's going to try and be with this guy. He doesn't care. He's he's got his mind set on starting something. Um, but all the guys that are around him are bigger than him, you know? If if, if any one of those guys threw a punch at him, they, you feel like they could probably tech him, but he just exudes this menace about him. Um, and again, he does that in the second film. Um, but, yeah, so definitely a cracking turn from both him and Ewan McGregor. Mm. Um, let's, let's move on to one of the most sort of harrowing scenes in the movie, the, the detox scene. Mm. where McGregor's um, forcibly locked in a room and, and made to clear the, the, the drugs out of his system by his parents. <clears throat> and this is one of the most, I'd say, like visually interesting scenes I've seen mm. in this movie and also terrifying at the same time. You know, yeah. you, you've got the... I really like some of the, the, the way the camera moves where it's got McGregor rolling about in the sheets and then he'll lift it and somebody will be there talking to him and then he'll put the sheets back down and roll about and he's just lying in a single bed but it's kind of done like a one take kind of yeah. thing, it's all trickery and it's such a haunting scene and it's played off with you know, people there visit him talking to him, imagination of people talking to him where, where like Spud's locked up and he's got the chains and then you've got the, the baby crawling across the, the the ceiling, mm. which is it's obviously very fake looking, but even it, even now it's still just disturbing. It's horrific because yeah. the the face is all puffed up, mm-hmm. um, and it, it just it looks unnatural. It's still human form, but warped. Mm. And yeah, I, I think any any time in movies that they take babies or young young children mm-hmm. and twist it some way to be to be something unnatural. It creeps me the hell out, um, and I mean, I, it's, it, it, see, I, I, I have some things in my past that I, I'm not, I don't know if I, I should talk about them. It's not that I have a problem talking about them, but I don't know if I should because I don't want to, I don't want to depress the hell out of people. But okay. um, it just. I, I, the, when we see the baby, and I don't, not in this particular sequence, but mm-hmm. um, when we f- see the baby in the cot, when we first learn that the baby has has died, um, yeah, that that rem- it reminds me of something, um, something I, I'd seen. Um, but, but basically, I I, I I saw a baby that had been flushed down a toilet, and. It was an image uh, that basically just, it scarred me, absolutely scarred me. Um, and it was around the same time that I saw train spotting, because, like I, like I say, I didn't see it for a, until a, a couple of years after it had been at the cinema. And so when I saw that scene in the film... It it really hit me, it really hit me, um, and watching it this time around, um, I had that those feelings coming back to the surface of of what I'd seen 
as well as the fact that I am now a father myself. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think some people have, I don't know, they have a, a strong stomach, this kind of stuff, I, I guess, doesn't get to them as, as much. But mm. each time I've, I've watched this film, there's just that scene, seeing that baby in the cot, it it's it does something to me. It really, it really gets down to the depths in a mm-hmm. way that I don't like. And then seeing the 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 detox scene with with that baby then coming and and on the ceiling. Because um, it, it, man, there's I mean, there's so much going on in that scene. There's so yeah. much you can read into it because. You've not just got the, you've not just got Renton and what he's going through, um, you know this this, seeing how addiction takes, not just a mental hold but a physical hold, but you've also got the sins of the characters themselves and the responsibility, um, or the lack thereof, and and what that has caused. You know this 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 baby is is a reminder of, of their sins of their irresponsible natures um, of their selfish natures because that's what drugs do to you that's what addiction does it turns you into a selfish person mm. and as a result it has consequences one of which and, and, and I guess the the worst possible one I guess is is this baby you know seeing this baby crawling uh, uh, across the ceiling it's, it's an extremely dark moment and like I say every time I watch it it really gut punches me um it's just horrific i remember seeing this um i've seen this movie more times than i could count and the strange thing is is this is the first time i've watched it since i became a father myself Mm. and since becoming a father i've found myself more attuned to children in peril within movies it seems Mm. to have an immediate effect on me an uncomfortable effect on me. It's something I don't like. It just it, it turns my stomach. I've actually seen me leaving movies because of things that are happening like mm. that. So, Trainspotting, movie I love, movie I've seen countless times, seen it on the big screen uh, for the first time ever, and it starts, and you, you see the baby in certain scenes right through the start, you know, yeah. and, and immediately, you know, I know what's coming, and you've seen this baby rolling about, crawling yeah. across the floors. There's needles everywhere. It's. I think it's, it's something that really affects you when you become a parent and you see this yeah. this child and, and the situation it's in. But when I was younger, I didn't notice that. Mm. You know, and it's it's. It's, an ominous image because you know a baby in that environment, is never good. Something is going to happen at some point. And when it does happen, it's it is like a, a probably the, the lowest of the low. It's a it's a point a breaking point for a lot of the characters within the movie. That's when they properly go off the rails and they start to they start doing more thefts. They get heavily into the drugs. They start to like properly rob people round about them. Mm. Um, you see that with the uh, sick boys Spud and Mark when they're stealing the stuff from the the shop and getting chased by the security guards. That they're, they're going into. And again, it's a humorous scene after that where they're going into like a nursing home and stealing the TV right in front of the people. And but what they're doing is some of the most depraved acts that they can. It's almost as if they're using the drugs at that point as an escape from 
the real world that the pains that are, are affecting them. It's, yeah. it's kind of understandable almost at that point. You, know, you, yeah. you, you wish you could escape from that site that you've just seen. Mm, yeah. Um, and, it, and it does. That's brought us down a bit there, didn't it? it well, this, this, is, this, is, this is the thing. This is why I was umming and ahhing. I, did, I didn't know whether to bring that information forward, but without knowing that, it's kind of hard to tell you where I'm coming from. Um, yeah. And I, I do apologise to any listeners um, if, if that's upsetting. I... I I understand that, um, but it's just. I think we take the take we take the things that happen to us in life, and, and we do bring them to to the movies we watch, mm-hmm. and <clears throat> you know that that's just the position I come from when I when I come to that scene and when I come to this film is that I bring that baggage with me and it affects me on that level, um, and that's kind of, that's why it affects me on that level, but. But yeah, I mean, to 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 to, to get things back up, um, you know, let's, just, let's, let's shift gear. We do have what I think is something of a of a hopeful ending to the film. You know, I, I think in this film we kind of go through the uh, through the valley of the shadow of death, um, but we do go through it in the sense that we get out at the other side, and 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 again. You know, going back to uh, Requiem for a Dream, in that film we don't. You go through the Valley of the Shadow of Hell, and and you kind of stop in the middle of it, and the film ends. And for me, that's it's not a place I want to be left as an audience member. And I don't think Train Spotting leaves you in that place. Um, you know, we're following this character, Mark Renton. He's he's our main main guy, mm-hmm. and there really is a sense of hope at the end of this film, that he is going to go on to better things, that he's going to be able to leave this life behind him. Although the fact that they ever thought they'd be able to do it on, on £16,000 <laughs> is uh, <laughs> it's something of a... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, you, you yeah I mean, <laughs> the, the way they're celebrating is if they've just won the lottery, you know. What you got to do? You're sharing the money. It's just <laughs> yeah. I mean, even back then, I'm not sure how much that was worth. I mean... And they, they were intending to split that four ways as well. So 4,000 each is really not a lot. Um. <laughs> and it does, it, it leaves uh, Spud 4,000 as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, so, it's 12. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, so what do you, what do you hope to uh, achieve with, with 12,000? I'll never know, but... Um, well, that, that's, that's one of the things I do like about the movie. I know we're laughing about it in now, but the movie takes a turn when... when uh, Mark is clean and he moves down to London and gets himself a job. He's, he's escaped the lifestyle, he's got himself a job, he's on track for living the, the, the normal life. Mm. And then his friends appear. His friends appear and just bring him right back down. Tear yeah. him, they, they, they tear him down. Um, and I think at the ending, stealing the money, sure, he's stealing the money because it's, it's money, but he's also doing it to cut ties with his friends. Yeah, well, that, I mean, that's the big thing. And going back to, like I say, a lot of those testimonies that I hear from people who, who are in the world of addiction, when they're giving advice to people who are trying to get off, off drugs, trying to get out of that world, literally one of, the, one, of the big, one of the most frequent things I hear from them is, 
you can't just get rid of the drugs. You have to get rid of your circle of friends, which is the hardest thing because as as much as the people you that you you call your friends, you know, um, that your so called friends who most of the time are just out to score. They still are your friends in your head, in in your life. They're, they're the closest thing you know to to, to friend to friendship. Um, but you have to get rid of them, and that's a hard thing to do. But that that's like I say, that's one of the pieces of advice I hear most is that you have to get rid of that that close circle of friends that you those people you think are your friends. Um, you got to cut the ties, um, otherwise they're, they're always going to try and pull you back into that world. And you may think that you can try and pull them with you, try and bring them along for the ride to, to where you're going, but more often than not, you can't. And, and, and it's much harder to do that than it, than it is for them to pull you back to where they are. Um, and that's, that's what this ending kind of, kind of is all about, I guess. It's... it's uh, and again, it's it's that realism that that creeps into what is otherwise a, a quite surreal film. There's so many elements within the the surreal stuff that actually pertains to reality, that pertains to things that I know is a reality for drug addicts because I've spoken to them. You know, it's, it's again that that going back to the the toilet scene. You know, that's it's it's a weird scene. It's all surreal, mm-hmm. but. It, it it speaks to a reality of of the mentality of a drug addict, and again this this ending it speaks to the reality of of what you need to do as an addict if you want to get clean if you want to get away from that lifestyle. See, I've always looked at the toilet scene as uh, Mark putting his mind somewhere else than what the task he's actually doing. You know, he's, he's fishing about in a, a, a not very nice situation. <laughs> so I think it's just a kind of like putting his mind elsewhere. Um, that's the way I always looked at that scene, but um... no, I, 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 I don't think you're wrong there. I think I think it's a combination of the two. I think mm-hmm. th- the fact of the matter is, he's willing to crawl into the crappiest yeah. toilet of Scotland. You know, he's <laughs> you have to demonstrate that in a, in a way that um, that reconciles the fact that that is something nobody would want to do and yet here we are watching somebody do it you know how how do you visually reconcile that if we literally just see him crawling into a toilet um like in a natural way you know sticking his hands down there crawling through the poo then you look at that as a, as, as a viewer and you think why would anyone do that but the moment you you put it into this dreams like sequence, which, as you say, you know, in his head, he he's fishing for pearls. Yeah. You know, he's he's not he's he's not fishing in a, in a poo a pooey toilet for 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 drugs. Yeah. He's diving in the ocean for pearls because to him that's what that's what it is, yeah. um, and that's the mentality of a drug addict is that, you know, if if they saw what we see that they wouldn't go fishing for them. But yeah. that's not what they see, because they need that high. Um, so, so what about the music in this thing? The music's um, very <laughs> iconic as well, and really drives the movie along at a sort of blistering pace. Because, I mean, every time I sit down and watch this, I almost forget that it's just 90 minutes, because it really does encapsulate a lot, and it's I think it moves along so fast because of the music within the movie. Yeah, I don't think there's a single track in this that now, when you hear it, 
you don't think of train spotting. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I'm not the biggest Lou Reed. Well, I'm not a Lou Reed fan. I, I, the, his, the song of his that appears in this film, I bought the album of his that that came off um, on the strength of, of this film, you know. It's, it is a cracking song, and there mm -hmm. is like one or two other cracking songs of his on the album. But the album overall... It's not that strong, if, if I'm being honest. And I'm, I'm sure I've just offended tons of Lou Reed fans out there, but I, I, I honestly don't think people would celebrate Lou Reed as much if it wasn't for train spotting. I think in the same way that Pulp Fiction uh, reinvigorated the career of John Travolta and, um, you know, the, the same with other... Tarantino films because that's what he does. He always takes an actor that has kind of fallen or, or from you grace. Take the, and, the, the reservoir dogs stuck in the middle. Yeah, thing. yeah, exactly. You know, I, I think I think it's that effect. I think by having a film that was such a cultural phenomenon, and by having that song in there, I think people suddenly became these devoted Lou Reed fans. And personally, I I don't see the. Uh, I don't see the attraction, but the, the song that they use is definitely a good one, and mm -hmm. it's it's certainly matched up to visuals that give it a bit more strength, give it a bit more oomph. I think, and 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 to me, like I say, when I hear these songs, the first thing I think of is Train Spotting. Yeah. Um, now Danny Boyle, who obviously has become one of the the best directors working today, he does an excellent job with this movie. Adding in these little <coughs> boilisms that he does, you know, these, these strange, surreal moments throughout the movie. Um, and he really sort of brings it, you know, some of the aspects to life. Uh, one of the, the most interesting shots that I like is the overdose sequence. When yeah. Mark literally sinks six feet into the ground. Yeah. And then you see that. You see his perspective is always from that. It's just a... Such an interesting choice, but I think Boyle really comes into his own in this. You know, it's understandable why there was countless uh, counterfeiters. I would say after the fact, you know, trying to copy mm. his style. But he's just evolved through all his movies and continued to do these type of things. Yeah, yeah. It's de definitely. Uh, if it to me, it feels like someone who had everything to prove um, and re I, I think sometimes when you know when you don't have a huge budget and you, you're you're kind of very early in your career you have everything to prove and, and you kind of fight for things more I think um, and again the lack of budget makes you more creative in many ways and I think that th this film is definitely a, a good example of that. Um, and he, he was coming off the back of Shallow Grave, which in its own right is a very good British film, but yeah. certainly certainly didn't get the kind of traction that this got. Mm -hmm. I, I think that a lot of people obviously went back and revisited it after Train Spotting, but it didn't make the kind of impact that Train Spotting did. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, uh, I, th I think. Danny Boyle was on fire here when when he's directing. Just some of the visuals, really creative stuff. Um, yeah, fantastic. I think there's the only things we haven't really touched on, I suppose, are, are Tommy, um, which is a kind of cliched storyline within this movie. You know, well, the, the... well it it was it cliched then though. Um, 
That's a point. A point. Well, I'm you know, not it's, it's, sure. just, it's it's actually it's really it's one of the saddest things in the film, I think, mm. and it's one of the aspects I always remembered actually from when I first watched it. It's just this. And again, it comes. It's that responsibility thing, you know. When we look in the in that um, detox scene, and I was talking about that, you know, it represents the sins of these characters with that baby, but also one of the things is Tommy because he he's clean. He's he's not a druggie, and he he's inquisitive. He asks, you know, Renton if he if he can have a have a pop. And rather than being a responsible adult, rather than being someone who says, actually, you know what, I don't, you're my friend, I don't want you in this world, keep clean, he, he gives him a pop. And because of that, he contracts HIV. Um, so, you know, Renton is responsible for that. You know, and Renton feels the weight of that. And that's one of the things that, that forces him to go clean, I think. Or one, certainly one of the things that forces him to stay clean. Um, it's, it's that desire for the drugs as well. It shows you that kind of drive. Like he knows, he knows again, he's not an idiot. We, we know that. He knows what he's going to do. He's going to get his friend hooked on this stuff mm. by letting him try it. But then he also does it after uh, Baby Dawn dies as, as mm. well. The first thing they do is reach for a needle. Yeah. You know, and, and he even says in voiceover, you know, because the, the mother's crying, she's like, she really needs a hit. Mm. Um, and she yeah, will get one, but after he gets his first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, the selfishness of an addict. I will just say as well that um, oh, what's her face, the girl Kelly plays McDon- the under it. Ke- Kelly McDonald. Yeah. So this was the first. I think the, I think this was the first thing she did. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is her first film, but yeah, absolutely brilliant. She, you know, she she didn't get a lot of screen time, but. Yeah, she's incredible, um, and no wonder that she went on to to great things. Obviously, she was in uh, No Country for Old Men, yeah. um, great in that as well. But. And, and you get to see, again, to, to fire it back to Mark, you get to see that he's not, let's see, what do you say, like, like a bad person. Like, once he finds out that she's a, a schoolgirl, he's, mm. he's appalled. Yeah. You know, whereas if this was Sick Boy, <laughs> it would be a yeah, different yeah. situation. But Mark's actually a, a, a pulled and tell, tells her that it can't happen again. It shouldn't have happened, you know. Yeah, I, I think it's the fact that he does at least have some kind of moral sensibility mm-hmm. that allows us in some way to identify with him and root for him. Um, you know, because he does some despicable things. You know, mm-hmm. we've just pointed out. Um, he, you know, he he's essentially responsible for getting his 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 friend. Uh, you know, HIV positive, and it, if you just have those things on the surface, he is a despicable character, and there's no reason to kind of enjoy any of these people in any way. But I think because, like the the, the two characters, I think people mostly enjoy watching um, or identify with in some way tends to be Renton and Spud, mm-hmm. and I think. Renton, obviously, because he has this moral code, you know, as I say that in the loosest of terms, but yeah. he does have certain kind of sense of morality, which leads him out of the world of drugs at the end. Mm-hmm. And then you've got Spud, who basically 
you know, he doesn't know any better. He's he's obviously a little bit mentally um, challenged, shall we say. It's uh, kind of like a childlike kind of innocence, almost. Yeah. It seems that kind of easily led way. Yeah, you you feel like if the, if if that if that circle of friends turned themselves around, um, got themselves all got themselves clean, I feel like they could help Spud get clean. I feel like he'd follow them, but. He, yeah, like you say, he's like a child, so he he just follows the crowd. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I I think it's it is that moral kind of sense that allows us to to have something to root for, I guess, in the film to have some reason to carry on watching these people. As I've mentioned before, Transporting is one of my top ten movies of all time. Um, I do love it. I feel that it's it's something that's. It's changed the more I have changed, which is always a good sign in a movie, and it's something I think I'm always going to watch, um, and uh, I'm curious to see what I get out of it as I get older. I think it's a great movie. I like all the characters. I think Danny Boyle does a fantastic job in really pushing this thing along. It's got a thumping soundtrack. It is a product of my country, which makes me very happy because I don't have a lot of Scottish movies that I can hold up and go you know this thing is iconic freedom oh god no you know what don't like Braveheart oh man Um, that was going to be my next choice I I think I think it's been years since I've seen it but I think I'm pissed off by the amount of folks that shout that as if it's supposed to mean something Um, yeah you know just when you talk about Scottish pride I'm train spotting Um, so yeah, for me it's easily a five out of five. You're right though. It's like li- list, list the films on one hand that you can think of that are truly Scottish, that truly epitomise Scotland. You can't, and w- and when there is some kind of Scottish flavour to a film, you end up getting an American playing them, or or or, or, or an Englishman playing them with a yeah. dodgy accent, and it's just. I, it, there's no, it's no surprise to me that you know Scot Scottish people have embraced this film. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, it's it's just, I'm just thankful that it's a good one, you know. Yeah. But it, I just, I just think that if if the film wasn't as good as it is, mm-hmm. I still feel like the Scottish people would have embraced it because, quite frankly, they've got nothing else to embrace. There That's is sure. no, there's no kind of Scottish. You know, there's no big laundry list of Scottish movies out there, so I, I yeah, I feel uh, somewhat sorry for for your country <laughs> in that regard. Um, but there you go. Uh, yeah, for me, like I say, it's, it's a very hard hitting film. It's it's also very funny in in parts. Sometimes I think that humour does get a bit too broad. You know, I think of Spud tossing all the poo. <laughs> over, over the it is it is hilarious um you know but it but it's also very broad very kind of um you, you kind of kind of feel like it's maybe a step down in, in some areas i think some of these sex moments in it get a bit crass mm. um and i do i do think there is an attempt there in parts to be a little bit too tarantino-esque jumping on that bandwagon of, of the mid-90s in which an awful lot of filmmakers were, were trying to be Tarantino-esque. It just so happens that here 
they did a damn good job of it. Um, so I, I give it a four out of five. Very, very good film. Um, yeah. That, okay, that's it, right? one more thing I wanted to ask you is how did you get along with the the inflection, the, the, the sort of language, the, the harsh tones of the Scottish language? How did you get on with that within the movie? It really doesn't bother me. I speak to you, like, every week, so... <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just... I, uh, th- there's only one time I've ever had a problem with the, with the Scottish language, and that's... I used to do a door-to-door collection for, say, Rocco's, and I, I once knocked on this door, and this guy comes to the door, and he's like... And I was like, what on earth was that? And, and like he could see in my face that, that I didn't understand him, but that just made him agitated, and he started getting angry with me. Yeah. Um, and he was getting to the point where he was shouting at me, and then suddenly his daughter came from, from around the back and literally just told him to sod off into the living room. And then she apologised, and he was like, don't mind him, he's like really broad Glaswegian and... Mm-hmm. He he gets really bent out of shape by by uh, English people who can't understand him. Yeah. That's literally the only time I've ever had trouble with the Scottish language. But in in movies, I yeah, it's, it's never bothered me. I I am aware that when this film played in America, yeah. <laughs> they had a subtitled version of it, um, which I I find staggering. But um, yeah, I I it I don't have any trouble with the inflection at all. It's you know to me, it's still the British. British language, so yeah. Yeah. Okay, so the top five for this episode was the top five Danny Boyle films. Um, I found this one incredibly hard, and incredibly hard to, to come up with a, a five because it could have interchanged to any of them. The guys had that good a career, um, but I managed to pick five of my favourites, which I may change while we're talking. Who knows? <laughs> but. Um, do you want to go first, Brian? Uh, why don't you go first on this one while so, I uh, <laughs> while I try and pull up my list? Um. Okay, <laughs> number five on my list is Shallow Grave. Again, I like the fact that it's it's a low budget three character piece, pretty much set in primarily one location, with some interesting photography and the way it moves from sort of room to room and how the paranoia creeps in throughout the movie and how the the characters that had such good relationships slowly start to deteriorate and crumble under the pressure of this suitcase of money. It's a fairly simple tale, but it's extremely well told, and it gave us a a glimpse of things to come with Boyle. Okay. Uh, Yeah, it it is a cracking film. Um, I I was actually... (laughs) Someone who saw it before Train Spotting, believe it or not, um, <clears throat> it was it was one of them films that was on TV later. Now I think it was a Channel Four thing because if I'm not mistaken, Channel Four may have produced it. I I could be wrong on that, yeah, but yeah, they did. <clears throat> yeah, I, I I seem to recall it being on Channel Four late one night, and I watched it with my parents. Um, but we we really enjoyed it. I was like, wow, that's that's a British film. It's a British film, and it's it's not a period drama. What's going on? Um, <laughs> so, yeah, de- definitely a shot in the arm for the industry, for the B- British film industry, I'd say, um, Danny Boyle. Uh, but, yeah, uh, my number five is Train Spotting, which is 
the film we have just discussed, so I don't think you need to hear my thoughts on it. Sure. <clears throat> um, my number four is The Maligned Slumdog Millionaire. Um, I, I before like you move on, before you move on, my number four is Slumdog Millionaire. Oh, very good. Um, yeah. This one seemed to suffer a lot of a backlash about it. Um, well, this, if I'm not mistaken, this is 2008, isn't it? Yeah. And I think the primary reason this um, suffered a backlash is because The Dark Knight wasn't nominated for Best Picture. Right. Um, so I, I think around that time, I think people were a little bit bitter about that. I was one of those people. As you, as you know, Dark Knight is my favourite movie of all time. I definitely don't think Slumdog Millionaire is, is on the same level as The Dark Knight. But I do think, as you so rightly pointed out, that it has been much maligned. Um, but yeah, you, you're, you, you started anyway, so you, you, you give me your thoughts on it. I think it's, it's, a, it's easy to see why people would write it off. It seems kind of cookie cutter and kind of heart... You know, it's, it's there to give you that heartwarming feeling. But it, I like the way that it's worked into the, that craze of who wants to be a millionaire that came out. And the way it sort of flashes back and tells you his life throughout these questions that he's getting hit with, and every time I watch it, I'm I'm captivated by the thing. I'm I'm enthralled. I, it just lifts me up. It cheers me up. And you know what? I think the dance sequence at the end is great. <laughs> yeah, I I love that dance sequence actually. Um, again, it's that slight surrealism that yeah. Boyle brings into an otherwise naturalistic film. Um, but I remember when this came out, and um, I think it may have even had on the poster the feel-good film of the year. Yeah. If you watch this film and actually pay attention, it, it is far from being a feel-good film. There, you know, there is scenes in here. Okay, they don't show it, and yeah. it's um, out. You know, in, in its fullest form, they don't go full train spotting on it, but. Kids have their eyeballs <laughs> melted out so that they can be put on the streets to work for money, to beg for money, you know? Um, and, and don't forget, see... somebody climbs down a toilet. Yes, yes, they do. Um, and then we see his brother, while, while, he's, while he's going on an ascent to a more hopeful life, his brother, brother is constantly des- descending further and further downhill until he... Well, until he's dead, basically. So this is far from being the feel-good film that I think people kind of paint it out to be. It's, it's not quite as cookie-cutter as like, as you mentioned. There's, there's some really dark stuff in this, and I think yeah. it's a testament to the way it's written and the way that Boyle directs that actually you do come away with it, away from it feeling more hopeful. Um, it's, again, it's, 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 a, it's a trick that... Danny Boyle is is quite good at pulling off, taking dark subject matter and spinning it in such a way that you leave feeling a bit more positive, a bit more hopeful, in spite of some of the horrible things you've bore witness to. Um, My number three on my list is Sunshine, Uh, a movie that I hated when I left the cinema, absolutely <laughs> hated it, despised the thing, it took me years to go back and watch it again, I think what turned me off was the slasher-esque final third of the movie um, which I 
I came around to very quickly upon rewatches and realised that this is one of the best science fiction movies ever released. It's just, it, it is a masterpiece. And again, it's one that seems to have faded into the ether. You don't really hear people talking about it. And that is an absolute travesty. Um, so, yes, from going to hate it to becoming one of my favourite Danny Boyle movies, Sunshine is my number three. My number three is 28 Days Later, mm -hmm. um, a film that pretty much single-handedly brought back the zombie movie. Um, the zombie film was dead. It was dead, plain and simple. Uh, I can't remember the last time a memorable zombie film had been out um, between, you know, the 70s and 28 Days Later. Uh, but yeah, you know, it's it's not it's not specifically a zombie movie. You know, the the the, the infected, as it were. Uh, are, well, they're referred to as that. They're they're the infected. They're not they're not specifically zombies as as we've known them in the past. But let's face it, they're zombies. Yeah. You know, there's there's no two ways about it. And you know, just just fairly fairly short time after this film we got the Dawn of the Dead remake. Yeah. Um, and all of a sudden, zombies didn't move slowly anymore. Yeah. You know, they moved fast. And that's, again, that's down to 28 days later. So it's such a, again, a shot in the arm for British cinema. doing mm. Because British cinema at this point was reserved for either period dramas or gangster flicks, yeah. you know, London set gangster flicks. That was it. And the only person making good London set gangster flicks was Guy Ritchie. Um, and everything else kind of felt like a rip-off of Guy Ritchie. And then everything else, like I say, was period dramas. Um, so Danny Royal comes along um, and, yeah, he makes a zombie movie, a British zombie movie that is kinetic, it is brutal, it has something to say, you know, it's got a lot of social commentary in there, you think about... And this is a thing with violence and Danny Boyle films, you know. Um, when he puts violence in his movies, he always has a point to it, or for, for the most part, he has a point to it. Um... So you think of the scene in here when the when the main character played by Killian Murphy he he basically sticks his thumbs in the eyeballs of this guy and it's a very brutal very violent moment but in that moment we see how a man who is still human can be reduced to something inhuman um in that moment he is unrecognizable from the from the infected he could he could very much well be one of the infected, mm. um, and you know when you when you strip away dignity, when you strip away love, um, and and all the th all the good things about human nature, y you become a monster. You you become inhuman, um, and yeah. So you know the the film absolutely has something to say. Um, and it, and and it was shot on a very low budget on digital cameras. So, yeah. again, it's 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 a film that I think a lot of aspiring filmmakers, student filmmakers, look to as an example of actually what you can achieve with very little. Um, 
So yeah, excellent film. My number three choice. Yeah, good choice. Uh, my number two, and just want to make sure you're sitting all right there, Brian, as I see it. My number two is A Lifeless Ordinary. Um, again. <laughs> yep, seriously, that is my number two. Oh, good grief. I, I'm another one of these forgotten boil flicks. Um, I got this primarily because it was the director of Trainspotting and it starred June McGregor and Cameron Diaz. And this is a very strange movie <laughs> involving <laughs> angels, uh, karaoke, uh, kidnap plots. It, it shouldn't be as much fun as it is, and uh, it's harboured by these say, great performances, Delroy Lindo and Holly Hunter and Hugh McGregor. Cameron Diaz, uh, but uh, again, it's just it's a strange little movie that I haven't heard anybody talk about in absolute years. Mm. But it is a fantastic movie. So if anybody hasn't seen this, you need to search it out and just check it out. It's it's a great a great flick. Now I will just back you up there as well because I am a defender of a lifeless ordinary. Um, I think I think. It, when you look at the 12 movies that Boyle has done, um, not counting the two straight-to-TV movies he did, um, which I haven't seen, um, of the 12 movies he's done, it's number eight in my uh, in my list of Danny Boyle movies. Uh, and I think that's just a testament to how strong he is as, as a director. Because I, I think it's a great film, I do. Yeah. Um, I'd, I'd give it a four out of five. I think it's very... It's all over the place, but in a, but in a good way, you know. Mm. It feels to me, it feels like a British raising Arizona, um, mm. you know. It, I, 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 baby kidnapping aside, that's you know that that doesn't cross over into a lifeless ordinary. But it 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 feels to me like a a, a, Br- a British Coen Brothers film, mm. um, and in the best possible sense. So yeah, I I like it um, quite a bit. It it just so happens that he's made seven other movies that are, are better than it in my mind. Mm. Um, so my number two, and the reason I didn't talk about it when you were talking about it, is Sunshine. Um, yeah, I freaking love this film, and I have never ever had a problem with that ending. Um, because when I watched it, it made absolute perfect sense to me. Um, because I mean, I mean if, for people who haven't seen Sunshine, they don't want it spoiling. Zip ahead now. Uh, Graham will put something in the show notes. Uh, if, if, you, if you want to avoid it, he'll put a time code in. But for those that have, basically, you know, we have this, this film in which the ship goes to the sun to try and reignite it, but they're going after a a ship that's already gone, um, which they've lost communication with, you know? Mm -hmm. So we have to find out what happened to that ship. And ultimately, it's it's a comment on the loneliness of space and what isolation can do to a man. Um, You know... People say, oh, it turns into a slasher movie, but I, I think it's more... 
I think there's more behind it than that. I think there's more of a a commentary on human nature than there is behind that. When you think about the, the themes of the film, you know, Earth is dying. Earth is dying because the sun is dying. And, you know, man is at his best when he pulls together. You know, the, the Earth has found some way of uniting together to go to the sun and reignite it in order to save the world. And that's encapsulated by this multicultural crew. You know, you've got a, a Western Caucasian guy, you've got a Chinese woman, um, a Japanese man. Um, there's, a, you know, there's, there's a black guy on there. Is there a black guy on there? There's, there is? Uh, yes, yes, there is. Uh, but, so basically, you've got this completely multi multicultural shit which embodies this almost Star Trek spirit of mankind coming together in order to fix the problems. And on the flip side of that, the opposite of that is you've got this man who actually has been alone in space for goodness knows how many years, and he's gone insane. He's gone absolutely insane. He's lost the plot. And to me, it doesn't feel like something that's been tacked onto the ending. It feels like a culmination of the themes of the film, which is, you know, mankind. What does it make, uh, you know... What is it to be human? And it's it's actually it's those connections in our, in our lives. It's the rest of humanity. It's being part of something bigger, part of this planet in which other humans exist on. And the flip side of that, obviously, is this guy at the end who's completely lost the plot because he has no one. He's he's on his own with his with his own thoughts in the vacuum of space. Um, it's a perfect ending, I think, to what is. A brilliant science fiction film which takes elements of so many other science fiction films to the point that actually this film could feel completely stale it could feel like you know what i've seen all this before i've seen like if you can seriously pull out so many elements in this film that you've seen in tons of other science fiction films but the fact that it feels fresh the fact that it's exciting it's an adrenaline rush it's got really great characters. It deals with some really uh, weighty themes. That's, again, a testament to Boyle, a testament to the writers. I, I think it was Alex Garland who wrote this, if I'm not mm -hmm. mistaken. Yeah. Um, you know, really great writer there. Uh, so, yeah, one of the best science fiction films, I would say, of the last 20 years. Yeah. Um, so check it out if you've not already, because like I say, it's my number two and it's Graham's number three. So, yeah, and my number one surprise, surprise is Train Spotting. So <laughs> I've said it all already. So we'll just move on to your number one, Brian. My number one is Steve Jobs. Uh, I I'm a sucker for Aaron Sorkin, and this is one of his best scripts. Um, I think this film. I I don't know if if you're going off direction, if you're just talking about what are, what are Danny Boyle's best directed films, then this wouldn't be my number one choice. But this is my favourite film of his that he has directed. Um, but I think there is more of an Aaron Sorkin fingerprint all over it um, than there is of a Danny, Danny Boyle fingerprint. Um, but that being said, you know, he directed it. 
It's mm-hmm. my favourite film of his that he directed. Um, and I, I think he still does a fantastic job, you know. Um, it, it, it takes a lot of skill to, to take... Take an Aaron Sarkin script and and just yeah just really run with it and and make something that's that's special. I mean, I mean like as a fan of the West Wing, going back and watching uh, Rob Reiner's The American President, you know, as a, a as basically a test run for the West Wing. It was an Aaron Sarkin script, and I I find it too slow to be honest. I, I I'm not as enthralled by it as I am with other. Or the screenplays. I think that that's that screenplay for the American president. You could take it and you could, you could do something a lot more kinetic with it, as is often done with with. Uh, well, obviously in the West Wing, that was a very kinetic show, really fast paced dialogue, mm-hmm. and that's what Danny Boyle does here. Um, and I think if if this film had been directed by Rob Reiner, I don't think it would have the same kind of impact. Uh, but D- Danny Boyle is is used to making kinetic films you know he's used to making films that boom 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 just race along um and i think that's the kind of sensibility you need when you're dealing with an aaron sarkin script so it's it's a perfect marriage to Mm. me of two of my favorite filmmakers so yeah steve jobs excellent okay so we're going to kind of not do so much about what we watched this episode because we both uh, recently seen Transporting 2 and I think we have a fair bit to talk about. <laughs> now, we've both got um, reviews up on our channels, obviously <clears throat> Brian Womack's Movie Talk and Man V Film. We have our own takes on it if you want to check that out. But briefly, before we get into anything we want to talk about, I'll just quickly say that I liked Transporting 2 a lot, really a lot, and uh, I've seen it three times so far um, in five days and I give it a five out of five, Brian. If Train Spotting, the first film, didn't exist, and this film came out, I would say it was a reasonably good British kind of thriller type thing. But because it is the sequel to one of the best British films of the nineties. I give it a two and a half out of five. I think it is really, really disappointing. And based on everything I'm hearing from people at the moment, I'm starting to think that it's really, really overhyped as well. Wow. Well, let's just um, see. I, I, like, I'm a huge fan of Transport in the original one. And whereas I liked it because I could see I had. Um, aspects of people that I did know and some of the characters and it was filmed in my country and I had a, a certain affinity towards the, the movie. But that's kind of where it went. I've never been a drug user, I've never really been around drug users, I can't really articulate what or how about they go about their business other than that movie. But the second one I feel that I can communicate with and, and take a lot more from simply because of the way it's set up and it's all about nostalgia and it's all about finding that, that friendship and, and, and being friends with somebody you haven't seen for years and that's something that I've experienced and, and when I hang out with my friends we always look back at the nostalgia and it's something that I felt a lot more in tune with. In fact, I, I felt like it really spoke to me a lot because of the, the whole aspect of it. Now, we did our top fives. Um, Transporting 2 is just out and I, I, I feel it's unfair to put a movie like that onto a list when it's only been out for a couple of days. 
but in saying six months time, if my feelings are still the same, if I went to do the Danny Boyle top five again, it would be number one. No, no way. Yes. No way. Yes. You cannot yes. say and this film is better than the first one. You just I, I think cannot. it may be. No and chance in hell. I'll tell you this. Just now, it's well, at the end of January, I think I've seen the best film of the year. It's going to take a lot to beat that. You, you know I don't like to swear on this podcast, but that's bollocks. Absolutely. That's a mic drop, Brian. That's a mic drop. <laughs> that is a mic drop. I'm sorry, but see, the trouble with this film is that okay. it is so focused on nostalgia that it spends half its running time, or so it felt like as I was watching it, just doing callbacks to the first film. So without that first film, it it doesn't really work you know like you, you you can't say that it's better than the first film because without those callbacks to feed your nostalgia it wouldn't work at all it is entire it is a film that is entirely propped up on the original um mm-hmm. but those callbacks all they did for me is serve to remind me of how good the original was and make me wish I was watching the original throughout this film. Let's let's go. So you you didn't like some of the callbacks that are in the movie. Some of the callbacks. Right. It, it it's it's it feels constant. It feel, right from the opening shot. Like I I appreciate that. I appreciate with, with that the... opening shot when you know when you find he's running on a treadmill. I thought that uh-huh. that was good because it it takes. It, it takes us into the world of train spotting. It makes it familiar because of that opening shot, because it's it's a rehash of the opening shot from the first film. But because we're now on the treadmill, we get this generational thing. So yeah, actually, this is this is the difference between Renton's culture back then and what it is now, and how cultures change. So that that scene, the opening scene, I think is brilliant. You know, it, it takes us between those two worlds. I get it. That's great, but. Then you have other ones where literally he goes into his old room and he starts flicking through his um, record and he puts that record mm-hmm. on. You get those opening beats of the... Um, is, it, is it the Iggy Pop one from the beginning? Yeah. That just annoyed me because... I mean, it's, it's, it's literally like... It goes dump dump and then stops. Like, <laughs> I mean, you can, it's, you can barely get what song it is. I mean, you can... It, it's, the thing, but then it, it kind of it turns it off and it's kind of like rubbing his head and you know he, he wants to listen to it but he doesn't. Turns it off. I, I don't really know how that annoyed you as much. But it's because it's literally because, a fraction of a second. Because it was one of many. Because it doesn't it doesn't really do anything for me um, from a from a story point of view that you couldn't do. In a different way that didn't that, that didn't require entirely um, a knowledge of the first film. The, the thing is, Mark Kermode in his review of it, he said something that kind of made me think um, from a, from a different perspective. Um, and, and I can't remember precisely what he said, but basically, it made me feel like you know what if it if I hadn't watched that first film. 
just the day before because because we, we we I watched the film mm-hmm. and then you and me for the spoilers by the way for anyone listening this podcast has been filmed into uh, recorded in two parts but basically I I, I watched that first film and then. Um, the day after, I went to see Train Spotting too. Um, so, it, uh, I, I feel like that close proximity kind of ruined it for me. And I feel like if a lot of the stuff I remembered from the first film literally was a memory, so in the same way that these characters remember, you know, because they, they don't get a replay. You know, 20 years ago to them was 20 years ago. Whereas us, we've replayed their 20 years ago moment however many times we've watched the film over the years. And like I Mm -hmm. said, I I watched it the day before I went to see this second film. And I feel that that hurt my experience of the second film. I mean, clearly that isn't the case with everyone because you loved it and you did see them in close proximity. But for me personally, I feel that all those callbacks, all those nods and winks would have worked better through a haze of 20 years of having not seen it. You know, like, um, yeah, I, I kind of remember something like that. Um, and, and then that's, that's nostalgia, you know? That's nostalgia, that's memory. Whereas, for me, it wasn't that, because I had seen the film the day before, so it was, like, fresh, so fresh in my mind... That now I'm just thinking, actually, all you're doing is rehashing moments from the first film, trying to, trying to gain, I don't, I don't know, like a, I don't know what the word is, but it, it just doesn't feel earned to me. It doesn't feel earned, because I don't feel like this film has its own identity in any real sense. It's just cribbing from the identity of that first film. But, I mean, it is, it's obviously going to be connected to the first film. It's a sequel to it, you know, so it is, it's taking the same characters from that, and but it's changing it. Where the first one was a, a jug-filled kind of punk movie, this one's more a midlife crisis, and this is the, the sort of things that they're going through. You know, they're looking back at times that, that weren't that great, and they're picking the sort of best points out of it and are trying to pick the best points out of it as a, as a nostalgic kick, as, as kind of, well, that time was better back then. But then you're you're saying like if you hadn't watched the movie the day before, I've seen the movie countless times. I can play a part in the movie pretty much, and I even caught things that y- you may have missed because they use a lot of like um, a lot of the small s- grips, small sentences from the first movie. They put it into the same character's mouth, but changes the inflection of it as well. That I noticed several times throughout the movie, but it, it all kind of brought it together like a. Like, I love the first one. I like the characters. This one is even better because, whereas the first one spoke to me back then, it's not as prevalent now. This one speaks very much to me and how I look at things. You know, when I walk about places with my friends, we think back to things that we did that were much like these guys do. And I found that that really, really spoke to me that way. I, I don't... I think you're, you're latching on to too much of this replaying stuff in the first movie. It's it's not just that though. That's the thing. Uh, that that was just the tip of the iceberg. That that was the thing. That was the thing that set alarm bells ringing in my head as it was going on. Um, but but I kind of felt you know you know what once once we get all the characters together, let's see where it goes. 
But that I found disappointing as well. And the way in which they get together feels so contrived. Begbie breaks out of prison conveniently, conveniently, right at the moment that Renton returns. And Renton returns conveniently, conveniently, just in time to save Spud's life and stop him from killing himself. It's like... Seriously. Coincidence, man. No, it's contrived. I'm sorry, there's only one word for that, and it is contrived. If you if you wrote that in another film that wasn't directed by Danny Boyle or wasn't directed by someone like Christopher Nolan, you know, someone people respect, you would be... If Zack Snyder did that, people would be ripping him a new one. You know, that they they would they would never ever in a million years let Zack Snyder get away with that. Never. They would say it was contrived and they would say that there was that Snyder doesn't know how to handle story. I'm sorry, but that is just contrived as anything. And can you tell me one thing? I this this may I I may have just simply missed this. Um but in the first film did we get any reference to Begbie having a son, having a girlfriend or a wife or anything like that? Um, no, not really, no. Right. So, at the end of the first film, when Begbie gets pretty much carted off to prison straight away because the police bust him and they're already after him from that bank job, when in the hell did Begbie get the opportunity... To not only find a woman, but also get her knocked up and have a son. Because... Speak to man. No, 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 no. See, because to me, that just feels like, hang on, you're introducing an element but, that possibly yeah, should yeah, have yeah, been set up in the first film, but wasn't, and now you're skirting around it, and you've not even bothered to explain it. You're not even dropped just, a line in there, like conjugal visits or anything. Because we don't know that... I mean, obviously, the police arrive in the first one, but we don't know that Begbie's been locked up for 20 years then. People are on... Um, they, they they can still be in an, an active court case, but be out on bail, can't they? I, 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 hear, I hear what you're saying, but to me, it just feels brushed over. It feels like we need this element in this story because we're shoehorning in this thing about Begbie's dad... So we have to give him a son, so this whole thing resonates, and it feels fast. That moment when he is, when he has that touching moment with his son, that to me feels fast. The moment where we have the flashback with his dad, and we realise, oh, Begbie, you know, really, he's just a tortured soul. He's got daddy issues. It feels fast. It it just stank when. <coughs> When we have that first film, Begbie was such a menacing character. He was such a a lone wolf. It just... It neutered him. It absolutely neutered him. I, 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 feel, I feel the opposite. Um, I feel like in, in the first one, he had his, Begbie had his core group of friends and he always seemed to kind of, sort of like hang about with the guys and that. And this one... It's pretty much just him, and he is is going to hurt pretty much all the the, the rest of the gangs and that, and and you even see it when he 
he threatens June, his, his, his partner, and his son several times, you know, he, he shows that even with his own blood, he's now just a violent animal. I think he's more threatening than this one. Except he goes against that when he suddenly has his big father-son moment, when he tells his son think, that, essentially, you know, without really saying it, I love you, please go off to college, be a better man than I. Well, he does pretty much I, say I think it. that's just down to Spud's story, and he's just... I mean, he still knows that he's... I mean, he, he does, hasn't had a complete change of heart because he's just going to go and try and murder Rent after this. <laughs> you know, he's, he's just trying to... He knows that this is probably the last time he's going to see his son, and he's just trying to send him off. It makes it again makes it feel hollow. If you're gonna redeem a character, redeem a character. Otherwise, See, that would have felt hollow. Because like, Begbie, Begbie isn't a redeemable character. He's not a nice person. He's done some horrible things, and one story's not going to change his full aspect of life. It may make him focus on one aspect, which is his son, where he goes like, you know what, my father wasn't great to me. I've not been great to you. I'm going to go away for a while. I probably won't see you again. I'll make this small gesture. If he was in that boy's life for any longer than an hour or two, he would have reverted back to the same old Begbie. Oh, it just it, it just feels to me like Danny Boyle is trying to have his cake and eat it. He wants he wants us to laugh at this character, and then he wants us to fear this character, and then he wants us to be touched by this character. And it's just to me, Renton was always the main character in the first film, and the other characters were in many ways ciphers. Um, they were there as ways of getting uh, Renton to see different perspectives and change the course of his life and whatnot. Whereas in this film, it almost feels like they're trying to make all four of these characters have their own story arc and, and kind of almost make it equal to each other. Um, it doesn't quite work out that way, but... Yeah, like so I, I think maybe Sick Boy gets shortchanged here, but the other three, Renton, Begbie and Spud, they, they almost kind of are on an even footing when it comes to what they're trying to do with their characters. And I don't like... Oh, man, it's just... See... Use your words. I'm going to use my words. The, the thing with Spud, right, What I, what I do like... I like the little speech that Renton gives to him about you're an addict, Spud, so be addicted. Mm -hmm. Just be addicted to something else. Mm -hmm. I get that, right? So I, I, and, I, and I like the, the, the idea of, of Spud finding this new identity in his writing, this new addiction mm -hmm. in his writing. But I completely hate the fact that we skip out the middle section of that, which is actually he needs to come off those drugs. And as we've seen in the first film, with that whole scene in which um, Renton comes off the drugs, you know, he goes cold turkey, it's a horrific thing. It is a physical, physiological nightmare. When you, when you come off heroin, it ain't easy, especially for someone who's been on it as long as Spud has. And I I feel like that's glossed over. Um, it's yeah, like one well, minute he's he's a he's a drug addict, the next minute oh he's he's a, he's addicted to writing his stories, and the drugs are just gone, and it, it's never really dealt with. And in, in the first movie, there's 
you know, rent comes off the drugs twice. Once he, he comes off it once by choice, and then he comes off it second time by force. And it's the, the one by force that seems to affect him the most um, when he's going through some things. And I think in this movie, this is it's, it's Bud's choice to come off the drugs. He has the drugs in his room. You see him walking over to it and, and crawling away. You see him writing and like pushing his face against the glass and making a noise. You see him with the jumper on, like holding his arm, his veins, where he takes it. it, it it's Spud's uh, coming off the drugs is more internalised. You know, he, he, he doesn't... He puts everything on the paper, and I think he shows you that in the movie. Hmm. It, it just didn't have the same weight. It didn't have the same impact to me, and it just it felt too easy. It felt... Now... I've, I've said already on this podcast that you know I've I've heard many testimonies from from ex drug addicts. Um, I mean I mean they a lot of the time they don't call themselves ex drug addicts. Addicts they still remain a drug addict. They just stay away from their addiction or they channel it into something else. But you know they, they all say that 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 process that the step between being on the drugs and being free from the drugs, that bit in between is, yeah, you know, it's hard. It's not simply a case of you make the choice and it's done. But I don't know, to me, it just felt a bit more whitewashed. I don't feel like... Like, with, with the first film, I came away from that feeling like we really got a sense of just of what addiction does to you and 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 what the the price you have to pay to come to come off it and i kind of get one half of that in this film but not the other and i don't know it just it feels in balance and it feels like they're 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 so kind of more concerned with turning this film into this comic caper between renton and begbie in which it becomes this bizarre kind of chase movie that the the tone feels so far removed from for me from that first film. It's it's just, yeah, it doesn't work yeah, for me. You you've got that scene back to to Spud. I think it's a great scene, um, where it's Spud's in the corner of his room and you've got the drugs sitting in the, in the the middle of the room in the brown paper bag and he's kind of sitting in the corner shaking, and you see the shadow of him. He's, it's, it's not him, it's obviously like in his mind of someone reaching into the bag and opening it. And I, I think that's like a great image. It kind of shows the, the sort of mental torment he's going through. He's like, what currently wants, wanting the drugs? But um, I, I didn't want something the same as train spotting. You know, I didn't want another one of that because that one's already like, like that. I wanted them to change it and try something different. And I feel like Danny Boyle definitely has. I haven't checked out any reviews on this other than yourself, Brian. Um, so I don't really know what the scuttlebutt is, whether people are liking it, hating it. Well, I, I'm, I'm the definitely in the minority on this one. Right. The, audience, the audiences I've seen it with, and that's in three occasions, have all seemed to be seemed to be really into it. Um, so, it, what, what else kind of like annoyed you about it? Other than, I mean, I, I kind of like the tone in this one. Mm. I did. I didn't like the soundtrack. I gotta say because most of oh. it. Most of it was again callbacks to the original, but kind of like remixes, and I hate remixes anyway. <laughs> oh, I, Brian, I thought that was one of the, the, a genius touch to it—the the, the sort of re, rearrangement of the music tracks. Like, um, 
but Perfect Day, I think I said it in my, my, my review, Perfect Day is a big uh, big moment in the first movie. And then as it, it plays up the title tracks and it's showing you the, the, the guys as youngsters, it's got like a piano piece of it playing. Very slowed down, very nice, very subtle, just it reminds you of the, the old times, the good days, you know, perfect days as the, the four group of guys are just playing football at school. I thought like, the, the rearranging of the music was was wonderful, one of the best aspects that I wasn't expecting, that I absolutely loved. Uh, just, it just again, it just reminded me of how much better it was in the first film. A- anything else? <laughs> <laughs> um, well... I, I found Sick Boy even more dislikable in this film. I mean, like, I, I never really liked him all that much in the first one. But in this one, I just, yeah, I find him a bit more detestable. I mean, it's, it's not it's not a big issue, but... No, I, I think I'm, I'm with you on that. With you on that, but there, there's one line in the movie that kind of changed my opinion a little bit on that, and that is Veronica when she's having a, a meal or a bottle of wine with Renton. And she says, like, you know, I like, I like Simon. I think I like Simon more than he likes himself. Mm, yeah. You know, there, can... there is one, yeah, actually, one really good callback to the first film with Simon. So there is one moment with Sick Boy, actually, that I really did like, and it was when Renton calls him out on the child that they lost. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, re- you really start to realise there just how much that moment from the first film with that with that baby affected his life um and it really did mess him up he did a number on his head and like veronica says probably as a result of that he really doesn't like himself and he's just gone down this self-destructive pattern of behavior um i did like that i did um and like i say i don't i don't hate this film i really don't by any other standards, I would say it's actually, it's actually quite a decent film. My problem simply comes from the fact that when, when I watch it, I sit there thinking how much more I preferred the first film and how much of this film's identity is tied into that film. Um, yeah. But it's all in moments, not necessarily in the story, not necessarily in the character acts, but just those moments. By throwing up so many moments throughout the film, calling back to to that first film, um, I, I I just thought it was messy. It didn't work for me, and I I felt removed from the film as I was watching it, and I don't know why. Mm. I, I just. Maybe I do need to go back and watch this again. Maybe I need to give it another go, see see if my opinion changes. Yeah, I think I would definitely suggest I'd, I'd maybe give yourself some distance on it, but I, from seeing it the, the, the second or third time that I have, I've noticed that the movie is actually really well constructed and it really does layer in lots of points that you don't notice to the second third times around that I hadn't picked up on the first time. And it, it really just builds to a collective whole. I mean, I, I, honestly, I can't believe how well it's turned out. I was worried about this movie until I saw the first trailer, and then I was really curious. I didn't want a sequel to Trainspotting. Uh, you know, Trainspotting was one of those out-of-nowhere iconic movies that just lasts a lifetime. 
you know, and, and sequels to that never work. <laughs> Honestly, nobody was more surprised than me that it turned out to be a movie that I honestly, honestly do believe, I'm pretty sure, surpasses the first one, in my oh, esteem. And I, and I think it's, I think it's because, well, I've 20 years have passed since the first one came out, I've had good 20 years of, of growing in me, of changing personalities to now where this one speaks to me a lot more, and that's what I think Danny Boyle's done, he's tried to make a movie that's going to speak to people that were 20 year old when the first one came out. See, yeah, I just, I don't know, I guess, I guess I'm not just, I guess I'm just not a nostalgic person. I, I hate much of my childhood um, and I hate much of my teenage years even more. So I, I don't care to look back on them all that much. So I, I guess I, I'm, I'm not really touched well, by the notion of nostalgia. See, I think maybe it's... It, Maybe the movies hit you the wrong way because of all the throwbacks to the first one. Mm. And maybe when you get by it and you can focus on the story a bit more and, and try maybe try and block those elements out, I think you may get a little bit more out of it. I hope you do because I, I really do think that it's a, a terrific movie. It's still very yeah. contrived, though. The way that those characters come together, the coincidences, as you call them, it just, again, that stuff I mean, takes me out. I, I just... It, it, you get the thing of, of Begbie, like Begbie breaks out of jail because his latest appeal has fallen flat. You can say that that's the final straw for him, and it just so happens that Renton's back in the country at that point. But then Renton's back at the, co- the, the, the country at that point because his marriage has failed. He's about to lose his job. He has nothing else in Amsterdam for him, so he does the only thing that he can do, which is go home. Mm. You know, in everyday life, coincidences do happen. You could say they're contrivances, but it's... Tomato, tomato, you know. I, 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 feel, I, I feel like I would have liked the film better if Sick Boy didn't have a revenge plot against Renton. Um, I, fe- I, fe- no. I feel like Renton should have broken out of prison because he heard that... Sorry, uh, Begbie should have broken out of prison because he heard that Renton had returned. Um, he shouldn't have broken out of prison just, you know, coincidentally is, at the exact same moment that Renton the, the, the Simon Sickboy part, this is something that struck me odd the first time I watched the movie, is when he's telling Veronica his plan. You know, I'm going to draw him back in, I'm going to make him think I'm his best friend again, and then I'm going to hurt him like he hurt me. I think that's... I think that's sick boy Simon's personality. He's not being honest to himself there. He's k- kind of... He he's telling Veronica the tale of, of Renton stealing the money and he wants to hang out with Renton again. He does want him back in his life and he wants to kind of make it seem as if he's not easy or forgiving or a mug and that he's going to tell Veronica that he's going to bring him back in to, to traumatise him in some way, but he's not really going to do that. He just wants Renton back in his life. He's just big bravado, all talk. He's just saying it. I don't think he's any intention of doing it at any point. Hmm. Yeah, maybe. I just... Yeah. But, I, I, you know, a few tweaks. I think Begby finds out Renton's back, so he breaks out of prison. It, cure, it cures that contrivance. And it also means you don't have to have Begbie running around in all kind of hijinks before they even meet, you know? 
um, and you could build that up a bit more. You you could build up the uh, the threat of Begbie a bit more, rather than yeah having having him get out so early and then having to kind of meander about for a while with his son pulling jobs. The, the other thing, the other thing I'm a bit worried about is if you watch it again and you start to notice the other like small callbacks to the, <laughs> the first one that you may not have noticed this time. When, like when he's in the nightclub and he goes to the toilet and the toilet's a state mm. and he goes oof and just moves on to the next one. Yeah. You know that kind of thing? Yeah, it's, again, it's just like, what does that add? You know what I mean? You, like people say, oh, these, these things are, are there for nostalgia and it's like, well, that, that to me doesn't add anything to the character of Renton with regards to nostalgia. It just plays on our nostalgia, and I'm not a nostalgic person, so I don't want a callback. If 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 it if it doesn't have a relevance to the character, then to me it's not relevant. Um, like you shouldn't be preying on the audience's nostalgia; you should be preying on the on the on the character's nostalgia. So that having that moment in there where he he goes into that toilet, and goes ugh, and then comes out, I, that's supposed to be funny. We're supposed to laugh because oh yeah, we've seen the first one. We know what that is. But well, if you did, it could it could be that just it's that it's that horrible toilet that's in every club. But if you, you did, know, if you just... did that, if you did that kind of callback in, you know, like think of a remake. Think of any remake. They do it all the time in remakes. They call back to the original, and everyone who loves the original suddenly groans in the cinema. Because in actual fact, they don't want to be reminded of the of the better film, which they actually love. They just they want a new film. If you you know if you're gonna if you're gonna remake it, make it new, and that's what this feels like. When you've got a moment like that, it's just like, uh, yeah, it's supposed to be funny, but it's not. It's just reminding me of how great the first film was. Um, now I, I I will concede that I think maybe just maybe I'm a bit being a, a little bit too hard on this film um, but you know I, I can understand why you might like it as, as much as you do but I, I, I cannot for the life of me ah I cringe when you say that you think it might be better than the first film I, I don't I honestly don't get that I just I don't understand how anyone could think that this could be better than the first film I honestly do it just speaks to me I mean you can just to go back to that toilet scene, you can al- also read into it yourself that how far he has, has came in his life, that, you know, one time he used a toilet like that, climbed down a toilet like that, dug through a toilet like that, and now it's, it kind of revolts from just, you know, that lifestyle. I mean, it could be something that sparks a memory in him that go back to that moment. You know, he could be going, yeah, because of he remembers digging through something like that. Yeah. It could be a, a remembrance thing. Yes, it also harkens back to the first one if you take it that way. Maybe, but it can take both ways. Maybe for for whatever reason that I can't put my finger on, maybe I'm just not in the mindset where I where I want to dig deep enough in this film. Maybe I'm looking at things at a, on a surface level, and because I'm doing that, I'm rejecting it. Um, but for whatever reason, I, I yeah, I wasn't digging to those levels. When I when I see a scene like that where he looks at the toilet, my instant gut reaction is, yeah, we we get it, but so what? Um, it, it, there's, there's some, I feel as if I'm focusing all these things that 
didn't like about it. And I, I want to say, look, I, I, I like this movie. There was scenes that I thought were excellent that throw away things that just seemed small, like when he's, uh, he's at the, the, the dinner table with his dad and he's talking about how his mum died and there's just a shadow on the wall mm-hmm. of where his mum would be. Like it's a, like a figurine type of thing. I thought that was like excellent. That the, Danny Boyle does some good photography again when they're in the car and they've just scored some money and they're driving and they're talking about Georgie Best, a tale that they've probably told each other countless times because that's what people, nostalgic people tend to do, repeat the same stories. It's got the image of George Best in the car. It's got these nice touches to it. And there's, there's lots and lots of angles in this. Like he's, got, he's always got the camera like tilted some way, shape or form. Like really, not just, not just like a little bit, like really sharp angles in this. Dutch just, angles. <laughs> the, the, yeah, Dutch angles, but worse than that. Like there's some of them that are really odd. Mm. Um, if you watch it the second time round. No, I, I, I think Danny Boyle is um, an extraordinary visual director I, uh, I do I think to one of his strengths and I, I think this film has some cracking visuals in it some really good work uh, cinematography wise um, and and you know I, I do still like the character of Renton he's got you know he comes back and I, I do still think he's a likable character um, I I, I, I still kind of like Spud. And like I say, the elements of his storyline I do like. Um, I, 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 yeah, I, I don't know. Go on, hit, hit me with a few more things you like about it. Um, I, I like the way they do the, the, um, the humour and say look really sad or supposed to be depressing moments. Spud's trying to kill himself. You know when he's got the bag over his head and the next minute he just explodes. Fold <laughs> 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 with sick. I, I'll tell you and one it's... scene I really liked, actually. scene I really mm. liked is when uh, Renton and Simon go into the... Um, is it the Protestant club or the Catholic it's, club? It's like a loyalist bar. Yeah, a loyalist bar, that's it. And he sings yeah. that song... And yeah. it looks like it's going down like a ton of bricks. And then all of a sudden, mm-hmm. everyone starts cheering and they start singing along with it. And I started singing along with it. Like, and I was just like, this, I, I have no kind of Protestant or Catholic agenda at all. I'm neither one. But I, I, felt, the, uh, I felt the loyalist pride in that moment. Yeah. Um, I've, seen this, I've seen this movie, like I said, three times. And every time I've watched it, that's had me in tears with just how <laughs> funny it is because west of Scotland, which is where I stay, is this prominent divide between Catholic and Protestant that's completely idiotic, <laughs> but it's just everywhere. It's just that's how people look at each other, you mm. know, by, by your religion and as if yeah. it matters. Mm. And to see that just being just treated for what it is, you know, they're kind of mocking these people in the in the movie. Mm. Yeah, and rightly so, to be fair. And, <laughs> you know, it, it kind of, you can see, look, even in the cinemas, half the cinema will be offended and the other half will be <laughs> in uproarious <laughs> laughter because they keep to take this thing so seriously. I think it's one of the best scenes in the movie. Mm. That, um, that was my favourite scene, actually. I, I did it. I, get, I got a kick out of that. I thought it was funny. Yeah, it's hilarious. I, I like Spud's story. How the, the movie opens with Spud telling the story about British summertime, 
you know, like how he's, he's an hour late for everything. Yeah. He didn't realise the clock's went forward. <laughs> and then when you, you see the movie, again, you're realising that it's building his ability to tell a tale. Mm. You know, he, he, tell, he tells that story at the start. Yeah. He's talking to Veronica and he's telling her a story and she's like, you should write it down. And that's why he begins to realise that he can actually have an ability to do that. Mm. I like the fact that that's built right from the very start of the movie all the way through it. Um, the, the interactions between Renton and Simon, I think, are great because within a matter of moments, they're back to being the same guys that they probably always been like you know like laughing and joking but niggling at each other the whole time you know the way Simon keeps going like you know Veronica she's my girlfriend it, <laughs> it's just it's silly it's a silly thing for a grown man to say to another yeah. grown man but it's just these two seem to be almost uh, going back to the like, teenage years the way they interact with each other you know it, it's, I like the camaraderie between that relationship mm-hmm. What can I say? The movie, for me, is terrific. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's my number one for this year. D- don't you feel, though, that maybe, just maybe, your, your Scottish identity is feeding far too much into that? No, because like, I, hooray, I think... Ulti- I finally got a Scottish film! <laughs> we don't get them, no. ever! And now I've got I think, one. Um, I think if I had um, on the second and third watch, because this is what I was wary of, is definitely on on the second watch you kind of notice these things where there's a lull in the movie, a bit where you start checking your watch and going like, oh, is it? But I didn't have that in this movie. I was engaged the full time, both times I've seen it. In fact, I'd go and see it again in a heartbeat. Not a problem. Uh, you say Scottish Pride, possibly. But then you could just say that it just the movie just hits me. The right. movie just is just just right for me and my sensibilities at this time in my life, which I think it, it does. Okay. Okay. So that's uh, our watch list for <laughs> this episode. You know, uh-huh. I, I could long diatribe about uh, Train Spotting Two. Hopefully, you'll pick it up and and you can drop onto our YouTube channels and let us know your thoughts under our videos. It'll be quite easy to find on there. And uh, Brian, you want to let us know what we're going to be watching next month? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was a bit torn on this one. I didn't know what to do. Um, I was actually thinking Braveheart. And uh, like I say, we we recorded this podcast in two goes. And (laughs) because of your reaction to Braveheart on my suggestion, um, like in the first half... I decided to put the feelers out on Twitter and I put up four suggestions on Twitter. I let let the people vote, so to speak. And it seemed pretty unanimous that from the uh, four choices I put out there that people wanted us to review the guest. So that is what we are going to be doing next time. And can I just say straight away, huge fan of this thing. For for a a period of time, whenever somebody was over at my house, this thing get put on to show them. Um, so I'm really looking forward to checking it out again. Excellent. And the top five, Brian? Oh, you know, I did <laughs> not even think. Didn't even think. Um, here we go. Top five, just off the top of my head. Uh, top five. No, I've got nothing. Tell you what, top, <laughs> top. F- no, no, got nothing. Sorry. Nothing, nothing at all. <laughs> um, you must have something. Um, how about t- 
top five British Americans. <laughs> so top top five American characters played by British actors. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> just winging that one throwing that one out there um, yeah I have no idea what to do for that at all but I'm sure it's going to be fun finding out okay yeah so as always thanks for listening you'll be able to find out the time tracks in the show notes um, not that there's much here there's two reviews <laughs> <laughs> um, and we look forward to seeing you back next month for the guest now just a quick mention Brian and I have a new venture that's coming out and you probably noticed that this episode has been released on a Monday. That is because we are going to be going to a weekly format for the foreseeable future because Brian and I have a new venture, like I said. And you know what? I'm going to put Brian on the spot and let him tell you a little bit about it. <laughs> well, yes. Um, started off as my idea, but thankfully uh, Graham was very much open to it. And basically I'm a huge, huge X-Files nut. And... Ever since I kind of thought about the idea of doing podcasts, one of my dreams would be to actually go through every single episode of The X-Files and discuss each episode of The X-Files. And like I say, thankfully, Graham was up for that. So that's exactly what we are going to do. So starting with that that, that particular episode, that first one... Um, we're going to do that. We're going to go through every single episode. Um, so we'd like you to join us. And if you're a big X-Files fan, dig out those DVD box sets or Blu-ray box sets if you've got them and watch them along with us. Um, and then, uh, you know, comment on the episodes uh, along with us. Let us know what you think about each of them and let us know what you think about our reviews of them. Yep, so uh, every Monday we are going to drop an episode. The first Monday of the month will be the Brits on Flicks standard movie review. And every Monday in between that will be an X-Files Revisited review. So we look forward to seeing your reaction on that one. We hope it's as positive as, as our uh, opinion of the, the episodes or how we're looking forward to the series. And we will see you next time on Brits on Flux. Just a perfect day Drink sangria in the park And then later When it gets dark we go home Just a perfect day Feed animals in the zoo
just a perfect day. You made me forget myself. I thought I was someone else, someone good. Oh, it's such a perfect day. Just what you saw. 